0: I invite you this morning to turn in God's Word to Philippians chapter 2, please. Philippians chapter 2. And we'll read from verse 5 through to verse 11. Also, add my own words of welcome to all of assembled, for those who are visiting and sitting amongst the congregation. Give you a warm word of welcome. Trust you'll be blessed through the ministry of God's Word, and the Lord will draw very near to us uh, through this principal means of grace. So, Philippians chapter 2, we'll read. God's Word together, and then we'll look to the Lord once again The word of prayer. Philippians 2 and verse 5, let's hear the Word of our God. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, And we trust the Lord will bless the short reading of His Word to our heart. Let's just unite together in prayer and ask for the Lord to uh, come amongst us and to bless and help in the preaching of God's Word. So let's pray. Our loving and eternal God, we thank Thee and we bless Thee that Thou hast brought us together in this public fashion to worship Thee, afforded us this privilege to lift our voice, to utilize our vocal cords, our minds, our intellect, and our bodies to praise and to worship the God of heaven. We thank the Lord, for these wonderful words that we have been singing about. We thank the Lord, for one who is exalted. We thank the Lord, for the reading of Scripture. We thank thee for the revelation of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I come to preach, to expound what lies before us, what we have read. Oh, I pray, my Father, that Thou would wash me in the Redeemer's blood, that Thou would fill me with the Spirit. By faith I claim, and I take the promised Holy Ghost. Thou art one who cannot lie. And therefore, O Father, I thank Thee, and I bless Thee for the infilling of the Spirit. Help me now to speak as Thou would have me to speak. We pray, O God, for the drawing near of our God. We pray that heaven will come down our souls to greet and that glory will crown the mercy seat. Fill this sanctuary with the presence of God. Lord, bring every wandering thought into captivity. Still every heart. Give us the hush of heaven. Oh, we ask that thou would come. and Use the word, O God. Bless us and teach us about Jesus Christ. Apply the truth to our hearts by faith that, Lord, that we would exercise ourselves in these things and make use of them in our walk with thee. And so, Lord, we lift our eyes heavenward. Remember those amongst us that are not saved, are cold in heart. Speak, O God, we pray. Speak to each and every individual and be glorified. Hear our prayer and accept of our thanks. For I ask this all in the Savior's worthy and His precious name. Amen. We return to consider this great portion of the Word of God in Philippians chapter 2. And we have already looked at verses 6, 7, and 8 under the heading, The Descent of the Word. And I trust that your souls have been blessed as we have considered together our Savior and thought about the heights from which He came, the depths to which He descended, and the lengths to which He went in order to redeem our precious souls and in those verses 6 7 and 8 we have a summary of the humiliation of the son of god and now we become to begin to consider verses 9 to 11 which are really a summary of the exaltation of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 11 the apostle peter he did say and he told us there that the great theme of the old testament was the sufferings of Christ and the glory which should follow. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, that's the prophets, did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Peter also referred both to the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ in First Peter chapter 5 and the verse 1. The Lord Jesus himself also made it clear that both his Humiliation and his exaltation were spoken of in the Old Testament in Luke twenty-four and the verse thirty-six twenty-six, sorry, when he says to those two in the road to a mess, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Just as the sufferings of Christ were prophesied, so were his so was his exaltation. In Hebrews we read of Christ that he endured the cross. He despised the shame for the glory that was set before him. He understood his sufferings, his humiliation in the light of his exaltation. Now before we come to consider these words, verses 9, 10 11 in particular, I want to remind you once again that Paul he has a very particular practical purpose in mind in this portion. He has been dealing with the subject of unity, and he has been telling them in verses 3 and 4 that unity is the product of humility. then he sets Christ before them as the model, as the ultimate example of the one who humbled himself. The believer is to have the same mind as Christ Jesus, as we read there in verse 5. This passage, though very doctrinal, is therefore also very practical because it informs us the attitude that you and I must adopt as Christians, as Christ-like ones. We must humble ourselves. We must take the lowly place. And if we do this, we are assured over and over again in Scripture that the Lord will exalt us. In other words, the way to blessing and honor is the way down in humility. You want the Lord to bless you. You want the Lord to bless this congregation. Well, the way to blessing and honor is the way down in humility. And this is obviously a principle that the Apostle Paul, he wants to emphasize, and it's one that Christ taught on a number of occasions. He said in Matthew 23, in verse 12, And whosoever shall exalt themselves shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. And that's really one principle with two sides. If you lift yourself up in pride, well, then God will, He will push you down. Think of Belshazzar. We thought about him last Sunday evening. Daniel 5, we read there, he lifted up himself against God, but God put him down in judgment. However, if you take the lowly place, humble yourself before God, then He will lift you up. We think of Luke chapter 18. We think there of the the publican, and he was one who was justified because he was humble enough, humble enough to admit and acknowledge that he was a sinner, and he stood in need of God's mercy. And the Lord taught that principle, this principle of humility, being a precursor to exaltation, to blessing, at least three times in his earthly ministry. James, he reiterates it in James chapter 4 verse 10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. And so does Peter in 1 Peter 5 and verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. So the way to blessing, the way to honor, is humility. Now we're going to consider verses 9, 10, and 11, and we're going to do so under the heading, The Ascent of the Word. The Ascent of the Word. Alexander McLaren He had two sermons on these verses, verse 5 to verse 11, uh, called The Descent of the Word and The Ascent of the Word. And there's no point me in reinventing the wheel just to get a title for myself, so I'm going to employ his title, The Ascent of the Word. And I want to bring three things to your attention when we think about The Ascent of the Word. The Consequence, The Conferral, and The Confession. We have that in these verses, the consequence, the conferral, and the confession. But once again, getting into the study concerning these things, I'm only going to deal with the first thing this morning. I'm going to only deal with the consequence this morning, the consequence of Christ's humiliation. We have the consequence here of Christ's humiliation in the opening words of verse 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. The word wherefore is a conjunction, a connecting word, and therefore that which goes before is inextricably linked to what we read here in verse 9. We learn here that the exaltation of Jesus Christ is the reward. It is the consequence of his humiliation and sufferings. The word wherefore can also be read for which reason. And it shows us the cause and the effect relationship between Christ's self-humbling in verses 6, 7, and 8 and His exaltation in verses 9, 10, and 11. Now, as we consider the consequence of Christ's humiliation, I wanted to think about this under three headings this morning. Firstly, I want to think about the power. The power by which Christ was exalted. We read here that God hath also, or also hath highly, exalted Him. God. God also hath highly exalted Him. Though the Son of God humbled Himself, Christ was exalted by God. And here we see a distinction in the Godhead, yet we must keep in mind that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they never work in opposition to one another nor do they work work independently of one another. Christ's exaltation as mediator was the appropriate reward for His humiliation and was given unto Him by God the Father. The response of the Father to the humiliation of Jesus Christ or the Son of God is in perfect accord with the covenant of grace. It's also a fulfillment of the Old Testament Scripture. You see, in numerous times we have reference, have already referred to the prophets, speaking of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. We could think of the 110th Psalm, and we read there, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Or we could think of Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 52 and verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudient, prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And it's because the Lord was bruised and put to grief and made a soul an offering for sin and bore the iniquities of many and poured a soul out unto death that the Lord said, Therefore, in the light of all that, therefore will I divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, There's a phrase there concerning the exaltation, the reward, the just recompense of Christ's humiliation. Christ's exaltation is the just covenantal reward of what he accomplished. Alexander McLaren, he said this, Christ was exalted by God as a token to the universe that the Father approved the Son's descent. And that the work which he had done was indeed, as he declared it, to be finished. It's a declaration, it is the just reward of accomplishing redemption for his people by his humiliation. Now, the Apostle Paul here, he coins a word. And we have noticed that several times already in, in this book of in this little epistle of Philippians. He, he coins a word here that speaks of this exaltation. In our English translation, we have two words, highly exalted. But this is one word in the Greek, and it's only found here in the New Testament. It's a compound word. The stem, it is a word that means to elevate or to raise above. And then joined to that stem is a prefix. It's a preposition. And it's a word from which we get our English word, hyper, hyper. And so those two words together, it means that Christ, he is super exalted. He is hyper exalted. He is exalted with all exaltedness above all others to the highest rank and power to supreme majesty in a class by himself. That's what it means. He is highly exalted. He is hyper exalted with all exaltation. Now, it's hard enough for for us to grasp truly what it means for us or what it means for Him or meant for Him to plumb into the depths of His humiliation to redeem our souls. But it's even also harder for us to comprehend this side of eternity with the veil upon our mind just how high Jesus Christ has been exalted. He is highly exalted. Exalted in a way that was not what he had before his incarnation. This was not a self-exaltation. God exalted him. See, our world is filled with self-exaltation. Synonyms for that kind of attitude, you hear them today. It's arrogance, pride, self-importance, self-love, self-admiration, vanity, and narcissism. This term, at narcissism, it comes from a, a poem from a Roman poet called Ovid, written in 8 AD. And it's a mystical story about a handsome young man called Narcissus. And he spurns the advances of many potential lovers, and for that reason, he is cursed. He is cursed, and he's made to fall in love with his own reflection in a pool of water. When narcissist discovers that that the object of his love cannot love him back, well, he slowly pines away and he dies. This is not the spirit of the age. Self-infatuation. Thinking more about self instead of thinking about others. And such an individual lacks empathy. They lack that unwillingness to recognize or identify with the feelings or the needs of others. They have a a self of or have a sense of entitlement, and they take advantage of others to achieve their own aims. And this is the type of attitude that Paul is wanting these believers at Philippi to guard against. He sought to do it by placing before them Christ's self-abasement with the consequence of God's exaltation of him. Now, verse 9, it's really shorthand for the four main aspects of what happened to Christ in his exaltation. Question 28 of our shorter catechism, it asks the question, wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation? The answer, Christ's exaltation consisteth in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. Four aspects, resurrection, ascension, session at God's right hand, and His coming again. And each of those four aspects of Christ, exaltation in Scripture that is revealed that the operation of the power of God is in them. In Acts chapter 2, if you turn to Acts chapter 2, in the verse 32, Peter preaching at Pentecost, basing his proposition upon Old Testament Scripture, he says in Acts 2 and verse 32, he says, This Jesus hath God raised up, wherefore we are all witnesses. Turn to Acts chapter 3, in the verse 15, and we have the same thing. Acts 3, verse 15, and kill the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead. Go on over to Acts chapter 10 and the verse 40. Acts 10 and the verse 40, we read, There him God raised up the third day and showed him openly. It is evident that Christ was raised by the power of God. Then we read of Christ's ascension. In Ephesians chapter 1, go to Ephesians chapter 1, and we read there. In verse 19, it's speaking here in reference to the power of God. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in heavenly places. There's the ascension of Christ coupled together with His resurrection. Christ's session is also spoken of as something that is given unto Him by God the Father. Go to Acts chapter 5 and the verse 31 Acts chapter 5 and the verse 31 we read there him hath God exalted with his with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins Christ passed through the heavens as our great high priest and by his mediation redemption is applied to the sinner by the spirit giving unto them repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That's what the Lord is doing at the Father's right hand. He is interceding for His people that unto them will be given repentance and the forgiveness of sins. The Lord Jesus, He will also come again. At the Father's appointed time, God raised Him from the dead. God lifted Him to glory. God gave unto Him the ministry of intercession as the great high priest of his people, and God will send him forth again into this world. The humiliation of Jesus Christ is over, and he is now exalted by God in a state of transcendent glory as a consequence, the power which, by which he was exalted. Now, what does all this mean for us? There has to be practical application. Not only does it show us what attitude that you and I are to adopt, but it also has great significance because of our inseparable union with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, all that Christ did in His life and His death was for us. So intimate was our union with Him and in our federal head that we lived in Christ, we died in Jesus Christ, but our union with Christ does not stop at the cross. It doesn't. The consequence of his humiliation, that's his exaltation, is ours also. We are raised to new life in Christ. Our bodies will know that resurrection unto life eternal. Positionally, we have been raised up together and made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We also will have a priestly ministry in the new Jerusalem, He has made us kings and priests unto our God, and we will serve Him day and night in the temple. Also as well, when the Lord comes in His glory, we will come with Him, and His people will sit upon the thrones of judgment. We have a part in His exaltation because of what He did in His humiliation for us. And what a lifting up that is, child of God from the depths of the dunghill and the dust and the fearful pit and the miry clay off our sin, right up into the heights of glory. That's what God in Christ has done for you and me. And you see, when we humble ourselves before God and pride and self-importance and self-righteousness is all put away, God will exalt us in due time. We will occupy that place that we now have positionally in Christ Jesus, we will sit upon the throne of glory with our Savior. We'll be there with our Christ. The power by which He was exalted. But secondly, this morning, the person, the person who was exalted, wherefore God also hath highly exalted Him. Him, who is the Him? Well, it's the one spoken of in the previous verses. It's the Son of God who became man. The God-man is the one who is exalted. Now, we need to be clear here. And I, well, I, I, I operate from full notes. And it's important at points like this that we're precise, we're clear, we're accurate in our theology. We need to be clear in our understanding when we speak of the God-man as the one as the person who was exalted. Remember, as the God-man Christ, He possesses two natures. He is truly and fully God, and He is truly and fully man. He's not a mixture of them. He's not a division of them, but He's God and man, in one glorious person. Now, with respect to His divine nature, as He did not cease to be God, His exaltation did not lead to a new acquisition of glory, his humiliation involved the laying aside of his divine prerogatives, and when he was exalted, he assumed those rights again. The deity of Jesus Christ was not and could not be diminished by the incarnation; therefore, his divine nature could not, uh, per se, as uh, be exalted. When he prayed to his Father in that great high pri- priestly prayer of John seventeen. He said, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world wars. It was as the God, man, he would be glorified and exalted. The proper ex- exaltation, we might say, was of his human nature which alone was capable of receiving it. And yet, we must remember that his human nature never existed in isolation from his divine nature. Therefore, it's right to say, Christ the person, the God-man, was exalted. The Son of God's humiliation consisted in him uh, becoming man, but his exaltation does not consist in him of laying aside his humanity. It is an eternal union which in the incarnation Christ's human nature entered and joined with His divine nature. He now is and forever will be the God-man. And therefore we are to think of Christ in all the glory of His heavenly exalted state as the one who now bears the form of God and the fashion of of a man because, it is because of Christ's voluntary humiliation. God lifted him above or beyond the state of glory which he enjoyed before the incarnation, for he returned to heaven, the Son of Man as well as the Son of God. Not only did he enter upon all the rights and privileges of God as God but also of God as the God-man, as the God-man. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, we have a vision of the exalted, glorified God-man with all the features of his manhood described in that transcendent glory. There is a man in the glory. Let that thrill your soul, child of God. That's the one who has entered and That's the one who has been exalted. Yes, he always was God, did not cease to be God. His divine nature could not be exalted because of that. But his human nature could, yet it never existed in isolation from his divine. And now as the God man, he enters into all the rights, prerogatives, all the privileges of God that he had before the world began. There He is in glory. There He is in splendor. The God-man, Christ Jesus, Charles Hodge, He made this comment. The supreme ruler of the universe is a perfect man as well as perfect God. He still has all human sympathies and affections and can be touched with a sense of our infirmities. That a person in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily who is filled with all the love, tenderness, compassion, meekness, and forbearance which Christ manifested while here on earth has all power in heaven and earth committed into His hands and is not far from any one of us, is an unspeakable delight to all His people. There's a man in glory who understands us. By his humiliation learned what it was to suffer by experience, and now highly exalted He can not only identify and sympathize with His people and their need, but He can also do something about it. He can supply them with grace. He can set up, He can pull down kingdoms if need be. That's what our Christ can do to His people. This is a source of great consolation to know that He laid not aside their nature, but He retains it in glory. And while I make that careful distinction of what did or did not happen to the divine and human natures of Christ and His exaltation, keep in mind it is the person, it is the person of the God-man who is exalted. It is our mediator who is exalted in all those wondrous offices for us. William Hendrickson said he is exalted as King." having by His death, resurrection, and ascension achieved and displayed His triumph over His enemies. As prophet, He through His Spirit leads His own in all truth as priest. He in the basis of His accomplished atonement He lives to ever make intercession for those who draw near to God through Him. He is exalted prophet, priest, and king. Our prophet, your prophet, your priest, your king. He's there ruling for you. That's the person who is exalted. And that brings tremendous comfort to the child of God. There he is in the likeness of man, in the fashion as a man, highly exalted on the throne of glory. So we have thought about the power by which he was exalted and we have thought about the person who was exalted. Finally, this morning, I want us to think about the place, the place to which he was exalted. Where was Christ, the God-man, highly exalted to? Well, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us that Christ has been raised to sit at the Father's right hand. Hebrews 1 verse 3, "...who, being the brightness of his glory, an express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, there's the culminating act of His humiliation. After He had done that, sat down in the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the place to which He's been exalted. There's a number of references to Christ occupying the place at the Father's right hand in Scripture. New Testament, Mark chapter 16, Verse 19, it says there, So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, He was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. I could also mention Ephesians 1, 20, or Colossians 3, verse 1, Christ sits at the right hand upon the throne of glory, a throne of righteousness, a throne of grace, a throne of judgment, a throne of power. That is the position which He occupies. And it is a fulfillment. It's a fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision as he gives there in chapter 1 where the prophet says that he saw upon the likeness of the throne the likeness and the appearance. There's those words, likeness, appearance, form. The likeness as the appearance of a man above it. Now, As I draw to a close, I want to point out some things about the place at the Father's right hand to which Christ has been highly exalted. Firstly, it's a place of preeminence. A place of preeminence. In ancient times, the one who sat on the right hand of a monarch was highly favored. It was a place reserved for those who, will, who were equal in honor and dignity. Christ is the preeminent one. He is the head of His church which is His body, as we're told in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Romans 14, verse 9. It tells us that Christ both died and rose and revived, that He might be Lord both of the dead and the living. There is none higher in rank or in position than Christ. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords, rejected by men, exalted by God to the place of preeminence. The one whom we love. He occupies a place of preeminence. But it's also a place of power. It's a place of power because all power is given unto Him in heaven and earth. And that's what He told His disciples before He left it. We're told there also in Ephesians chapter 1, if you turn there again, Ephesians 1 and the verses 21 and 22. Far above all, principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And it put all things under His feet and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church. He is the ruler. He is the potentate, protector of His people. It's a place of power. Paul, he writes oh, about this position of power in 1 Corinthians 15. Turn over there. 1 Corinthians 15. In the verses 24 and 25, this position of power. 1 Corinthians 15, and it's all about a living Christ, a resurrected Christ, this great chapter of God's Word. Verse 24, then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The implication here in these two verses is that Christ is functioning as mediatorial king under authority that has been given unto him of God. Christ has been exalted to the place where he is sovereign of everything. That's the role that God has given unto him as the God-man. And when all his and our enemies are vanquished finally and eternally, He will present unto the Father the kingdom of his beloved subjects, and they will reign with him forever and forever. Here again is the comfort for the child of God. The sovereign is the one to whom you and I are united, and from whom none can sever. We have a saving interest in the one who doeth According to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, there's none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? There he is in the place of power. Men today, they think they have power. They have no power. What did the Lord say? Was it to Herod? Was it to Pilate? Can't accept. Thou would have no power at all, except I give it unto you. And men of this world, they think they have power. Governments think they have power, but they have no power except it be given unto them. And the one upon the throne, child of God, is one to whom you and I are united. What a blessed thought this is. At the right hand, He's there at the place of power, and He's ruling and He's reigning for us. Surely this should cause us to pray. Surely this could, should cause us to, 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 to have hope rise up within our souls that, that even though all the forces of hell may be arrayed against the church of Jesus Christ, There He is as the highly exalted one with all power given unto Him. And all these things that we read in Ephesians 1, put under His feet, principalities, powers, might, dominion, and every name that is named, they're all there. They're subject to Christ. It's a place of preeminence. It's a place of power. It's a place of prerogative. You see, the right is Christ's to reign and judge. Thomas Kelly, the hymn writer, he got it right when he penned the words, The highest place that heaven affords is His by sovereign rights. In John 5, we're told that God hath committed all judgment unto the Son. It's Christ's right. It's His prerogative. It's the God-man's prerogative to judge the world. God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that Man, the God-man whom He hath ordained. Christ will one day exercise His prerogative to judge this world of sinners. Something that has been bestowed unto Him in His exaltation. Think about that sinner. The Christ you reject has the right, has the prerogative to judge you. And He will, if you do not repent, but also as the mediator of the covenant. He has the right, He has the right to apply the blessings of salvation, which He has merited for sinners. It's His, it's His right, it's His prerogative from the throne. He applies the purchase of redemption to those for whom the price was paid. And of course, what's the chief blessing? That He purchased by His own blood for His people. It was the blessed Holy Ghost. Praise His name. Acts 2.33. Go to there again. Acts 2.33. It says, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, here's the place of prerogative, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, He hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. It's Christ's prerogative to give unto the church the fullness of the Holy Ghost. Claim that by faith, believer. It's His by right to give to the church. The ground for our asking and the assurance for our receiving of the infilling of the Spirit, child of God, is an exalted Christ who was once crucified. What a holy argument to bring before God, child of God. To be infilled with the Spirit. Believe it. Receive it. Christ is there and it's His right to give it on to the church. But there's more There's more. Not only is this Christ's right to send forth the Spirit, but it's also His right to give unto the church gifts for the ministry of the gospel. He's the king. He's the head of the church, Paul. He's quoting Psalm 68, verse 18, in Ephesians chapter 4. And he says there, "...when He ascended up on high, He led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men." And then there's a little parenthesis and it's followed by a number of gifts that Christ purchased and has the right to bestow upon the church. What are those gifts? And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. You pray, child of God, that Christ would furnish his church with ministers of the gospel to fill the pulpits and for men to fill the office of an elder. It's Christ's prerogative. It is His right as the exalted head of the church to give these gifts unto His church for the ministry, for the perfecting of the saints. Oh, that's why we pray the Lord of the harvest, that He will send forth laborers into His harvest field. He's there at the place of prerogative. Fourthly, finally, it's a place of prayer. Namely, the prayer of intercession. At God's right hand, He ever lives to make intercession for us. You see, the Old Testament priests, they passed out of the tenure of their office on account of their death, and they were followed by a successor. But Christ being exalted, who, who, who dieth no more, Therefore, he ever lives, and there is no successor. His priesthood is an unchangeable priesthood. Time does not allow me to permit, or permit me to enlarge upon the comfort of that truth that it brings to the hearts of God's people. But if I could say this about it, this is the grounds, the unchangeable priesthood of Jesus Christ. His perpetual prayers... They are the grounds for the believer's assurance. It is because He is exalted, because He has entered in with His own blood, because He ever lives to pray for us that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Absolutely nothing, child of God, in Him you are safe. In Him you are secure. There He is at God's right hand, a place of intercessory prayer, and He's praying for you. He's praying for me. It's a place of preeminence. It's a place of power. It's a place of prerogative. It's a place of prayer. There He is. That's the place to which He has been highly exalted as the God consequence of Christ's humiliation is that He has been highly exalted. We have thought about the power by which He was exalted, the person who was exalted, and the place to which He has been exalted. Far above all, we sang it. What a glorious hymn. What glorious truth there is in those hymns that we find in our hymn book. Based on Scripture, don't be afraid to sing them, child of God. Far above all is our Savior enthroned, crowned as a Lamb who for sinners atoned. There He is upon the throne of glory. And you and I, we have a part in His exaltation. Because what he did in his humiliation, it was for us. Next time we will consider from Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, the conferral. The conferral because we read that God hath given him a name which is above every. And also then we'll think about the confession. For every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Sinner, you're here this morning, and this is the one you reject. This is the one you're opposed to. This is the one you've set yourself against, and yet He is highly exalted. Humble yourself. The way to blessing, the way to honor is to humble yourself and acknowledge your great need of God's mercy. Child of God, you've wandered. You're cold in heart. These things don't thrill your soul. And yet you're united to Him still. Call upon Him. He's gifts for you. He's graces for you. Plead with Him to warm your soul, to restore you again into that blessed fellowship and saint that's walking with the Lord, there he is in his place of preeminence and power and prerogative and prayer. Seek the infilling of the Spirit. Walk in the light of it. Walk in the enjoyment of it. Let us bow before our God, for in due time, He will exalt us to the glory of heaven. Let's bow in prayer And let's ask the Lord to bless even what we've considered this morning to our hearts. Eternal God and gracious Father, we bow before Thee, we thank Thee for truth. We pray that Thou would apply it to our hearts, that You would thrill our souls. We prayed this morning in the prayer meeting beforehand, Lord, forgive us, for so often we lose the wonder and we lose the awe of our salvation and of our Christ. O God, we can scarcely grasp it, O God, just how high that our Savior has been exalted. The God-man, the mystery of it, yet the revelation of it in Thy Word. We believe it. We thank Thee for our blessed union with Him. O God, I pray for those who are amongst us and are not saved. Still separate from me because of their sin. Oh Lord, have mercy. Have mercy. Christ, thou art king of thy church. And there you are. And at the uh, Father's right hand, you have that priestly ministry. And Lord, you can grant unto sinners the forgiveness of sins and repentance. Lord, do it. Do it, we pray by the Spirit. Bring those to humble themselves before their God, that they may be exalted in due time. We pray, Lord, that you would bring us again to this house this evening, bring us in the fullness of the Spirit to hear what our God would have to say. Now we pray that thou would take us to our homes in safety. Watch over us, O God. May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be the portion of all thy people both now and forevermore. I pray this in the Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen.